Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. So you give me, give me 35 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes this morning. I, I, I got about th- a 30-minute message. We're starting our new sermon series, Lent. Everyone say Lent. Lent for the people. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about giving up, specifically six things. And it's, it's, it's funny, if you're not familiar with Lent, Lent comes from an old English word meaning springtime. And uh, if you like spring, you're going to love Lent. How many of you like spring? Okay, many of us love spring. I love spring. Uh, unfortunately, Lent gets a bad rap because in church history, Lent is a 40-day season where we all fast. And so um, it's, it's, it's good. Uh, unfortunately, Lent kind of gets a bad rap. Uh, you know, we're accustomed to giving up a little bit of coffee every now and then, maybe giving up our love affair or our obsession with the Oakland Raiders. I don't know why. But there are certain things that contain death in, in it, and that love affair with the Oakland Raiders, it's kind of, you know, anyways, I'm going to move on. There, there are some things in life that we need to give up. Can I get an amen? So we know that lust, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about lust, we're going to be talking about unforgiveness. And what you find in some of these dehumanized habits, if you were to strip it down to his roots, uh, you will find the presence of death. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about things that that we need to give up if we want life. Can I get any man to that? Uh, so, man, Lent is not, it's, it's not like some killjoy season. Uh, we're we're going to celebrate uh, Easter uh, even as we practice Lent. But over the next six weeks, uh, we will be talking about very, six specific things that we'll give up. Leading up to Easter, it's crazy, like Easter for many people. Uh, it's like a one-day festival. I've decided to change it. I think Easter should be like a, a, a whole new season. It's, it's weird. It's like Lent. We spend 40 days practicing Lent. Christmas, we celebrate it for a month. How many of you like Christmas? All right, some of you like Christmas. And then Easter, which is the most important festival, the most important thing that we celebrate as Christians, we give it one day. So we decided to change it. Uh, we're going to celebrate, or not going to celebrate, we're going to practice Lent uh, which is one side of holiness, and then we're going to celebrate Easter, and then uh, the six weeks following Easter, we're going to talk about six things we're going to take up, like joy, like hope, like serving people, like a new habit. Like I think as Christians, we should throw the best stinking parties, right? We should throw them down. I don't even know what I'm talking about, right? We should throw some we should throw some parties. So we decided Wednesday following Easter, just for your information, we'll talk more about this. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to have a party. We're going um, to let the Diet Pepsi flow like crazy. And we're going to get some barbecue. If you like barbecue, we're going to have some barbecue. And uh, we're going we're gonna to teach the world how to really throw a party and how to celebrate. I think as Christians, we should be filled with joy. Can I get any man to that? Come on. So Easter is not the end of something. It should be the beginning. And so we're excited uh, for uh, the next 12 weeks of, of sermon content. So uh, today, don't be impatient with me, but we're going to talk about giving up impatience this week. So if you give me four hours, I'm going to teach you patience as I bring the word. God. So uh, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, I want to read a parable, read a few verses, and then we're going to talk about um, patience and patience. 
So if you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, verse 24. Every time I point my finger, I'm actually pointing at the screen. I realize that you guys can't see the screen behind you, but just go with the flow. Uh, I'm not pointing at an angel or anything like that. Verse 24, Jesus is, is talking to his disciples, and he says, put another parable for them. This is uh, Matthew saying, uh, the kingdom of heaven, now Jesus is talking, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed. Jesus is now talking to himself. He's sowing good seed, which is the good news. Everyone say good news. The gospel is not um, okay news. It's good news. So Jesus is sowing the word. Everyone say the word. In his field, Jesus will tell his disciples the field uh, represents the world. We'll come to verse 25. <clears throat> but while his men were sleeping, his enemy, everyone say the enemy. The enemy, Jesus will tell us, is the Satan. So the Satan came and sowed during the night, sowed some weeds. Weeds symbolize um, the children of the Satan. This is what Jesus will tell his disciples after he tells his story. So he sows the, the weeds among the wheat and, and goes away, verse 26. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So if you're a farmer like me, you totally get what's going on. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, everyone say master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? So he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to hurry? Everyone say hurry. It's kind of the, the tense in, in the Greek here. Do you want us to hurry and go and gather up the, the weeds? But he said, no, less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Everyone say the harvest. So here we have like an eschatological feel to it. Don't, don't get nervous. Eschatology, uh, this is an oversimplification, simply means God's story, and God's story has a dramatic conclusion. So just so you know that God's in charge of world history. And even though this, it, it feels like a mess right now, God works out everything, and he's going to bring world history to a dramatic conclusion where he's going to do right by all of us. He will put the world back to rights, and he will create new heavens, new earth, and remake everything. And I should get an amen on that. So this kind of frames this story. Again, God is in charge of human history, and he says, at the harvest, and at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather this dramatic conclusion in God's story, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We'll talk a little bit about this, but quickly we'll go to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is one of my father's uh, favorite passage. Uh, growing up, he, he would quote it probably every other Sunday. I love this. Verse 8 says, but do not overlook this one fact. Everyone say one fact. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. So now we're talking about space-time stuff because I know you love that. Just so you know, for 2,000 years, church uh, historians and theologians have considered God to be tenseless. God has no tense. He's not contained in the present, the future, or the past. God sees it all. Can I get an amen to that? So he just has a different way of seeing our lives. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow, even though some of us feel like he's slow. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. You know, God makes promises, and he keeps his promises. So the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach 
repentance. Since all these things, verse 11, are thus to be dissolved, we're talking about old creation, we're talking about these dehumanized habits, lust, greed, unforgiveness, all that is on its way out, so don't even, don't even play that. Can I get an amen? So what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, Americans, we love this word, wait. Waiting for, everyone say waiting for, and all the impatient people are like, I got to get out of here, I got to get out of here. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That's old creation talk. But verse 13, God's not going to annihilate this planet, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for uh, your grace today. And I thank you that you help my voice. I thank you for your strength to communicate your word. Lord, I thank you for energy for all of us here to uh, apply our heart to the preaching of, of the word. Lord, we love you. We welcome you in this place. We know, Holy Spirit, you're already talking to all of us here. And we just say yes to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. So uh, our task this week is to give up impatience. And so I'm just going to get the cat out of the bag. I don't even know what that means. But impatience, if you want a definition, impatience uh, is, if you strip it down to its roots, it's this naive assumption, or at least it's rooted in this naive assumption that you're in charge of your life. Like I'm 40 now, and I've, I've come to the point, three children, and they have broke my will. But I've come to the point that I realized that Man, I'm not in charge of my life. So that's our working definition. Uh, impatience is rooted in just this naivety that somehow we're, we're in control of our circumstances. We're in control of, of everything, which then it, it helps to um, build this intolerance for waiting. Because if you just assume on, a, let's say, a subconscious level that you're really in charge of your life, and then circumstances blindside you, like they slap you on your face, and you realize those circumstances are outside of your control, what's going to happen? You're going to get irritable and grumpy. And that's why so many Christians are irritable and grumpy, not because they're just going through circumstances, but because they have assumed that they're actually in charge of their life. And when life happens and you come to the realization, oh, my gosh, I'm not in control. The Dallas Cowboys are going to lose all the time, no matter how much I pray for them right? They're going to lose, they're going to lose, they're going to lose, they're going to lose. When you come to that realization, man, it just, it hits you. And uh, you respond in a way that is impatient. But with Americans, we know this. We, we just don't have a tolerance for waiting. Yesterday, I took my kids uh, to Fancy Freeze. And uh, how many of you love Fancy Freeze downtown? So we were going to get a shake, a few things for the kids. They were really excited. So it was taking a little bit longer than, than we had anticipated the car in front of us, I'm not even joking, uh, there was about five people in that car, and we'd been in line for about five minutes, and the car started shaking, and I was like, what's going on? Well, I realized in front, uh, two of the people were really, were really frustrated with the wait time, so they're blankety-blanking stuff, they're getting frustrated, um, they're, they're, they started arguing with each other, um, they didn't get, you know, obviously they have a different time uh, table, 
for fast food. And they were just, I realized, I mean, I could see the like, faces contorting. People are frustrated. People are now arguing with each other all because they don't know how to wait. It's funny as Americans too, we, we have a problem with inefficiency. Like we value more than anything, not truth. We live in a post-truth world, just so you know. We don't care about truth. We care, as good old-fashioned Americans, we care about efficiency. So, for, for example, if, if you run your own business, if, if you want to be competitive and you understand laissez-faire economics and, you know, you understand that, you know, the economy is um, competitive and you want to remain competitive, you have to be efficient. So, let's say uh, you're a business owner and you're running your company and you get your product out to your customers within two days. Again, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but you can bankrupt in the long run your competitor who gets out their product to their uh, customers within three days, right? Because as Americans, we value efficiency. I mean, think about it. Technology has changed how we see the world. Remember the good old days when you went to Blockbuster and you rented a VHS, you spent like an hour at Blockbuster, you got the VHS, or do we even have DVDs anymore? You'd go and get your movie, you'd get your candy, you'd come home. Remember the good old days where you had to wait for your show? Like Thursday night, we had to wait for the Cosby show. We had to wait for Fresh, Fresh Prince, right? Every Thursday night, you couldn't binge watch it. You could go to Netflix, you could go to Apple TV, right? Well, that's technology for you. We don't know how to wait because we have infinity in our phones. So if we want information, if we want knowledge, if we want to entertain, entertain ourselves or amuse ourselves to death, we just go to our phone, we just go to our computer, we just go to um, our iPad. Yet, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but if you take this Western style efficiency and you demand that God conforms to it, you're, you're, you're in big trouble. Because God's timetable for your life is radically different. Come on, then your timetable for your life. I'm convinced, man, I'm convinced that, and I realized when my wife and I were first married that God has designed marriage to be inefficient. God, God takes two radically different people. My wife and I are on the opposite spectrums of human. I'm not joking. Like, and he, he brought us together. God loves to do this, to take two different, radically different people and show them within the framework of marriage how to love one another. But it's like if I had it my way, I realized that our discussions in our first three years of marriage, which you guys call fights, but we just have discussions. But our first three years of marriage, if you were to strip down our arguments, we came to the realization it was all about we wanted to control, we wanted to change each other. Man, I wish my wife uh, was obsessed with the Dallas Cowboys. I wish my wife would eat salami with me every day with the little white specks, which we call vitamins, right? 
But she loves vegan things. I love salami. I love the cowboys, right? She loves reality TV. I love philosophy and philosophers, and I love their language, and it's so inaccessible. And that's like my cup of tea. She hates it, right? She loves journaling, and she loves talking about her feelings. I'm not that kind of person. And so <laughs> it's, marriage is inefficient, it's inefficient, but I think God allows inefficiencies to teach us how to be patient. I, I want you to check out this video. It's in German, so if you speak German and they say something crazy, blame my wife. Um, but uh, I, I want you to check out this, this video. Yeah, it's all about impatience and how impatience negatively affects what God wants to do in our life. Go ahead and check this out. Er drückt nicht, weil es um ihn geht. Ah ja, ich muss auch so den Mal drücken, oder? So at the beginning, it's all about these judges um, really exemplifying impatience. They couldn't wait for the finished product. And I think it's, it's a microcosm of how we treat God at times. We, we just, we don't like delay. And so if we're not careful, we write off God. Or if we're not careful, we write off family members. Or if we're not careful, we write off our spouse. If we're not careful, we write off our church. Because um, we believe in the value of efficiency. Which the corollary of that is this cost-benefit analysis. So it really comes down to if you're not benefiting me, if you're not doing something for me, then I'm going to write you off. And if, we, if we're serious, how many of you are serious about following Jesus? If we're serious about following Jesus, we, we have to learn to be patient. It's funny, I asked my wife this, this week, I, I don't think I mentioned this on Tuesday, I was talking to the staff about patience and impatience, and I asked Kel to uh, research videos 
associated with patience. And she spent about 10 minutes trying to find a video with a human on it that was associated with patience. She didn't find one. All she found was animals associated with patience, which speaks to the point. Now, cats weren't involved because we know cats just, you know. But other animals, right? I think it just, it, it, it's telling that men as humans, we, we don't value patience. When you, go, when, you, when you go to the ancient Near East and, and we discuss pagan virtues, they did not consider patience to be a virtue. In fact, uh, early Christians were scorned because for the first three centuries, the one thing they wrote about the most, the primary vir- virtue that the early Christians fleshed out in the first three centuries was not faith, it was not goodness, it was not generosity. The thing that they embodied most was patience. And pagans could not understand it. In fact, one, one church theologian, it might have been Origen, he said, hey, we don't speak of great things, we live great things. They talked about, and they, they, they emphasized, hey, uh, our concern is not, when it comes to, to the defense of Christianity, is not the eloquence of words. It's the eloquence of our life. And they embodied the eloquence of life in their patience when they were under persecution, when they were violently opposed by Rome and by pagans. They embodied patience, and it was their patience that helped Christianize the Roman Empire. It wasn't their words. It was their deeds we have stories, crazy stories, of Christians being thrown into the amphitheater, stripped naked, like 15, 20 at a time. And they would release wild animals to go and gore these Christians to death. And we, we have amphitheaters in, in Carthage and in Rome that could seat up to 20,000 people. So could you imagine being thrown into the amphitheater, pagans jeering, And these Christians were being gored by wild animals, being shamed by the pagans. We have evidence that what they would do is they would give each other the kiss of peace. Basically, they they were a family. They knew they were a family. As they're being gored by wild animals, as they're bleeding to death, they would pick each other up and they would pray for each other. Not one time did a Christian in the amphitheater like throw epithets at, at the governor or at Caesar. Did not uh, call like um, curses down from heaven on their enemies. They practiced enemy love. They embodied patience as they gave their life for Jesus. And we have many stories of pagan jailers and um, officials and people actually after witnessing this embodied patience in the amphitheater converting to Christianity. I don't think we're just going to convert this world to Christianity through our talk. We're going to do it through our life and through our living. So why do these Christians commit themselves to patience? Why do we have to give up in patience? Well, the simple answer is God is patient. We come to this story. Jesus is sharing this with his disciples, and he said, hey, you know what? The enemy, the Satan, has come and He sowed uh, wheat into the field, and the disciples, their response is, well, why why don't we hurry? Why don't we go to the field and rip up the weeds? Well, I love this. Uh, Jesus said, hey, no, 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 if you you go, and I totally get this again because I'm a farmer, but if you go and you rip up the weeds, you're also going to pull up the wheat. 
there's, in this story, there's a, there's a waiting thing. I mean, the Satan has come and sown wheat. This is into your field. This is your livelihood. And yet, the farmer who symbolizes God is not in a rush to deal with it. He's not in a hurry. He exemplifies patience. I mean, the question that I've thought about most of my life is, why does God not deal with evil or large-scale injustice or genocide or, let's say, deal with tyrants immediately? Have you ever wondered that? Why does God not deal with evil immediately? How many of you, if, with, just with a show of hands, you would say, yes, that would, we, would be an incredible world if God would deal with tyrants and genocide and evil immediately? Go to raise your hand. I think we all would say, yes, that's a good thing. The problem is... The problem, that was a trick question. The problem is if God is to weigh every single thought in action, every evil thought, every evil intent, every evil action, none of us in this room, well, let me ask you this, would you be willing then to pay the price of God bringing justice to the tyrant, but God also bringing justice to your evil actions? Because evil is evil. Pride is pride. Hubris is hubris. Lust is lust. And yet we have this beautiful picture of, yes, God putting this world back to rights. But we also have this picture of God being patient with us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. Jesus says, the Father in heaven, he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And he lets the sun Rise on the just and the unjust. He's basically saying, hey, God right now is not offended by being ignored by billions of people on this Sunday because they didn't come to church to worship him. God's not like rushing to judgment or nursing resentment or bitterness every time someone does an evil act that disfigures the planet. Every evil act contains within itself an anti-God property. And the good news, and pagans could not understand this, and this is why the God of the Bible doesn't fit with any pagan category. Because pagans viewed the gods as capricious, as rash, as very judgmental or megalomaniacal. But the God of the Bible is one who refrains from bringing justice over every evil act or intention. That's good news. Your God loves you a lot. He's patient with you. He's so patient that we find in 2 Peter, what we count as slow, God counts as patient. Like, and this is, we, we need to reinterpret delay. We need to see delay not as you and I, let me say it this way, I'll back up just a little bit. When God comes and speaks to you, and that, that promise that God gives you, we all know, it's gonna take time for it to come to fruition, right? There's, there's a process that God takes us through. The problem, though, and, and Christians use this language, okay, God spoke to me, and he gave me this promise a long time ago, so I'm just waiting on God to fulfill that promise. That's actually a wrong way of looking at it. You don't wait on God to fulfill a promise. God is waiting on you. God is patient with you. You don't have to be patient with God. God is being patient with you. Delay is an in indicative that there are some things that God wants to do in you 
delay is indicative of an opportunity to grow more. To be truly human. Man, I wish I was in a Pentecostal church this morning. Delay is not you. Oh, I got to be patient with God. I got I to gotta wait on him to do his work because he's really slow. No, Peter, Pastor Peter tells us, no, that's, that's not it. Like, homie, don't play that. He never plays that. Jesus never plays that. God is the one who's patient with us. Wow. And this is what I love in Genesis chapter 15. We go all the way back to the Old Testament. God comes to Abraham in a covenant ceremony. And he tells Abraham, it's going to be 400 years before I deal with the Canaanites. Now, if you know anything with, about the Canaanites, the Canaanites practice atrocious things, child sac sacrifice, repulsive practices. And God is telling Abraham, before I give this land that the Canaanites have right now to your descendants, uh, I'm going to give them 400 years, or it's going to take 400 years before your descendants can inherit this land. Why would God let that happen? Because God's patient. God wants the Canaanites to repent. In Joshua chapter 6, again, uh, God gives this um, peculiar instruction to the children of Israel to circle, you're familiar with the story, to circle the town of Jericho seven times. Seven days. God, why wouldn't you just, why wouldn't you just tell them just to, to blow a trumpet, do a little Pentecostal, whatever, and shout at the walls and let it come down? What, is, is God trying to teach Israel to trust in him? Probably. But I, I, I do have a different theory, and I, this is not original to me. I do think that God was giving Jericho, Jericho seven days to repent. God is so patient. So patient. This is why I think God doesn't flesh out all the details of our life when he comes to us and says, I want you to do this. Because if, if I think God showed us everything that was going to happen over a 30-year period, probably most of us would say, I'm okay. See ya. Because you, from David, it was 10 years before he inherited the promises. Think of Moses, it was 40 years Right? Think of Abraham. It was a long time before the promise of God was fulfilled in him. Think of Paul. It was 14 years when he was in the Damascus wilderness. It takes time for God to grow a man and a woman up into his kingdom goodness and his kingdom heart. But when you're ready, watch out. That's when God will change a world and make a big difference in our world when we choose to rely on him. Again, I, I, think, I, I don't think I would be here today if God fleshed out every single detail over the last 20 years that I would have to experience and I would have to go through because I just don't think I would have the patience to say, okay, it's gonna take me that long to do this and to be that and to think that way. Okay, I'm gonna go like wrestle a cat or something. Right? So, if we're serious about following Jesus, we have to be serious about reflecting this kind of patience back into the world. Because how, how, I don't know about you, but how does God produce patience in us? Right? Have you ever wondered that? Like, it, you could try to be patient, 
But usually when you try to be patient, you just eventually become impatient. Like being impatient is like it's woven through the fabric of our being. Like I can't tell you how many times I've talked to my boys about being patient while I'm impatiently addressing them. How do you deconstruct patience in your life? Well, God has a tool. He's given us a gift. Are you ready for it? God produces patience in us through adversity. Adversity deconstructs in patience. How? Well, let me just read this really quick. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, Paul's talking about glory. He's talking about the sequence of really becoming a human and following Jesus. He's talking about justification by faith. He goes on and says, we have peace. Everyone say, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So Paul's talking about we have access, we're part of the family, we've been justified by faith, Jesus has achieved everything for us, can I get an amen to that? And then he says in verse 3, it, gets, it just gets, it gets dark. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We're not rejoicing because we're suffering, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Well, knowing that suffering produces, everyone say produces, it produces Patience. ESV says endurance, but the better translation is it produces patience. And patience produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How does suffering and adversity uh, produce patience. Well, we have Paul. How many of you love Pastor Paul? I think he really helps us interpret Romans 5. And in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, he says this, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this thing that we were going through or went through, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings guaranteed or granted us through the prayers of many. So this is what adversity does. Adversity cuts you down to size. Suffering gets you to the point where you realize, I'm sorry, I'm shouting, but you guys are a Pentecostal church and I'm ready for a good amen. It gets you to the point that you realize you're not in charge. Adversity cuts down this implicit bias that we all have. We all think we're in charge of our life. But suffering, there's nothing inherently right about suffering, but God uses what we go through to teach us to let God be God in our life. Amen. 
Let God be God. That's what suffering and difficulties and adversity teaches us. Because here's the thing, God is infinitely better at running your life than you are at running your life. And when we can get to this point where we've been cut down to size and we realize at the end of the day, we all are powerless. We're not in charge of our bodies. We're not in charge of our circumstances. We're not in charge of our future. We're not in charge of our lives. When we get to that point, that is the foundation where virtue then is grown and developed and it begins to flourish. Because when you realize, going back to Romans chapter five, that when you go through a circumstance, that if you're gonna make it, you have to rely on Jesus, your father in heaven, who raises the dead. When you get to that point, what does that do? That produces character, because that's the heart of patience. Patience is realizing you're not in charge. Patience is strength in the waiting time when there's delay. Patience is learning to trust God when you go through difficult times. And when that is your starting point, when that is your foundation, that's when character flourishes. The reason why some of you, men, are just, and I love you, but you're making some of the dumbest decisions of your life and yet you still love Jesus is because you still have not allowed the circumstances of your life to teach you that you're not in charge. Because when you realize you're not in charge and you gotta rely on Jesus, that's when character begins to flourish. And when character begins to flourish in your life, that produces hope. When you see change, when you're thinking in a different way, when you're now a Dallas Cowboy fan, you used to be an Oakland Raider fan, right? And your whole world and perception of reality is changing because of your character. What's going to happen to you? Your life is going to be filled with God's hope. And when God's hope fills you, Paul makes it very clear, the love of God's just going to flow through you to everybody else. The reason why we have a love problem the reason why we don't love our neighbor or love our enemy is because we simply have not first put our trust in God and have allowed Jesus to take over and to run and to take charge of our lives. Because can I get an amen on this? Love, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient, and patience is the toughest thing to master. Love bears all things. The early Christians, you know what? They were willing, willing to spend three centuries and practice patience when pagans persecuted them and killed them. And when their enemies came and took their lands, they practiced patience because they believed in 1 Corinthians 13 that love wears out evil. Every single time. Every single time. My goal over the next six weeks, and I believe God's gonna do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's gonna revolutionize our lives. We're not gonna just be eloquent in talk, but we're gonna be eloquent in our life. This is the foundation. Patience is the foundation for every other virtue. If you want to practice 
virtue, kindness, goodness, faith, whatever. Patience, you have to have patience. Patience is woven throughout the fabric of who God is and through the fabric of the fruit of the Spirit. If you lack patience, you lack everything else. This is why this week, over the next seven days, I want us to give up being impatient. The bad news is you're all gonna fail. But I want you to practice giving up in patience. How do we, how do, we do that? This is what I want you to do, just a simple exercise. Because you're, you're, you're all gonna go through probably a difficulty this week. I'm not prophesying that, I'm just, I, I understand life. Life happens, right? So yes, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna have victory this week. But there's still gonna be things that we're probably gonna go through. If you're a parent, you're probably gonna experience 55,000 different frustrating things with your children, probably. So whenever you come up with something that's frustrating this week or when you go through something that's difficult, maybe it's a large-scale problem or maybe it's just more street-level minor stuff, I want you to speak with your mouth. I want you to tell yourself. I want you to tell your body. If you have to, I want you to tell your spouse. If you have to, I want you to tell your kids, right? If you have to, you got to tell, you got to go outside and shout it. But I want you to tell yourself that what I'm going through is teaching me that I'm not in charge that's what I want you to do for the next seven days. Let adversity and difficulty and frustration, let it teach you that you can trust God. Let it teach you that ultimately you are powerless, but ultimately you're not helpless because your God is on your side and he's going to work out everything for your good. Come on. So that's what I want to practice this week. I want you to speak with your mouth. God, I'm not in charge. You are. God, I'm not in charge. You are. I'm going to put my trust in you. I'm going to rely on God who raises the dead. And what, what I want to do this morning as we transition felt like it was important to consecrate, to commit the next six weeks, this season of Lent. I wanted to consecrate it to God. I wanted to, I wanted to seal this service with receiving communion. So I want, I want our ushers to come forward. Communion is a, a powerful moment. As our ushers prepare the communion elements, everyone say elements. We're going to take the bread. We're going to take the grape juice. How many of you like grape juice? We're going to take it. And we're going to tell ourselves as, as we receive communion today that we're not in charge. Communion is all about an announcement that Jesus is the one who's running the universe. Jesus is the one who oversees quarks and dark matter and ostriches and people and things and objects in this material world. And if Jesus is in charge of the cosmos, Jesus is in charge of my life. Jesus is in charge of my life. We come to Mark chapter 14. It's Passover time. Jesus is instituting the, the Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper, but it's, it's like table fellowship. So he gets the disciples around this table, 12 disciples, and he looks at all of them. He takes the bread. He says, this, is, this bread symbolizes my body. I'm giving my life. Imagine Jesus looking at all of his disciples. 
saying, guys, I, this, is, this is a large-scale operation. Like, my ministry has been about new creation. God is inaugurating his future world through me, but look at me. I'm giving my life for you. I'm giving my life for you, Peter. I'm giving my life even for you, Judas. I'm giving my life for you, Thomas, Andrew, John. I'm giving my life for you. When we, when we take communion this morning, for, and now it's afternoon, it's 12, I'm lying, it's 1248. We're almost done. But as we take communion, church history has taught us that time and space come together. Like it, one scholar says it telescopes. Chris, what are you talking about? Why do you have to talk about time and space all the time? Well, it's like, I think Pastor Ken mentioned it at first service. It's like heaven, like somehow interlocks with, with earth when we take communion. It's like God comes in a living way. If you believe that, say amen. And to give you a practical just idea of time and space coming together, if that is true, that means when Jesus looked at Peter and said, hey, Pete, you got a bad mouth, and sometimes you frustrate the heck out of me, but I chose you, you didn't chose me. But just so you know, this bread represents what I'm gonna do for you. If time and space comes together, then Jesus is also saying the same thing to you today as you take communion. That Jesus is saying, here's my life, I'm bringing all the goodness to you. Because we all know we're gonna probably fail this week when it comes to patience. But the good news as we take communion is that Jesus never fails to be patient with us. So when our love comes to an end, when our patience comes to an end, today we're celebrating the fact that Jesus and his love and his goodness will never fail, will never cease. So if ushers come forward. They're going to pass the elements. Once you receive the elements, you can stand. Go ahead and go in front to back, and it'll take about two minutes. And once you receive the elements, you may stand. Don't be embarrassed. Thank you, Jesus. Church, I'm, I don't even know what to say. I'm, I'm thrilled that God is patient with me. Patient with me. The delays in our life, it's not God denying you or doing wrong by you. The delays that we experience are opportunities for us to grow in Jesus. It's God preparing us. To me, this is good news. If this is good news, could you just let me know? Amen. This is good news. So we're celebrating the fact as we take the elements that Jesus is running the universe. We're celebrating the fact that new creation is present. 
We're celebrating the fact that in ways we can't even imagine, time and space are coming together. This is, this is a lot better than Stranger Things. I'm trying to teach us how to think like Christians. So if you don't like my language, oh, I don't know what to do because I'm going to talk like this for the next 40 years. Thank you, Jesus. Most of us were almost ready. If you could bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, we thank you for your presence. And we thank you that your patience patient with us. Oh, we thank you for your living presence. Jesus, we declare that you're in this, in this room. And I just ask that you would show everyone in this room how much you love them. Just as, as Peter felt the love of Jesus when he broke the bread 2,000 years ago in that upper room, let us experience the same thing today. Some of you, you have no idea how much God loves you. And in the next two minutes, God's going to show you his love for you. You're going to sense it. You're going to see Jesus in a way you've never seen. So, Father, we commit today, we commit the next six weeks leading up to Easter. We commit it to your glory. Take over our hearts. Revolutionize how we think. In your name we pray. If you could lift up the bread. Father, we thank you that your bread symbolizes your life. And we thank you that you went to the cross for us. Lord, I thank you that your bread, your life, is subsumed within the Passover, the great Passover theme. That Jesus, you, you went to the cross and you defeated the powers so that we could be free. And we celebrate our freedom today. We thank you as we participate in the taking of the bread that your life and your healing would take over our bodies. Let an exchange take place in Jesus' name. You may eat the bread. If you could take the cup, you could raise the cup. Father, we thank you for the shedding of your blood, sending your son into human history. Lord, inaugurating God's brand new world. Lord, we thank you that shedding of the blood represents how far you went to love us. Lord, I thank you that you love us to the, to the very end. And Lord, I just ask in this holy moment that you would fill our hearts with your love as we experience your presence. In Jesus' name, you may drink. For 30 seconds, if you're a guest, you don't have to do this. But if this is your church family, your church home, can you just raise your hand really quick? And for 30 seconds, I want you to tell God how good he is right now. Tell him how good he is. Oh, we thank you, Father. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.